If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back and start from chapter one. Before we begin, a content warning. This episode contains accounts of domestic and sexual violence. This is the penultimate episode here at Panic Button. We hope you enjoy episode 11, The True Experts. One of the things that's been extremely helpful and enlightening for us as we learned more about battered women's syndrome and intimate partner violence, and especially how it interacts with the legal system, is to talk to some current day experts that have been certified by the court in what we in the courts call battered women's syndrome, but what they would call intimate partner violence or coercive control. And they've been called by both the prosecution and the defense in different cases that deal with the prosecution of either the domestic violence perpetrator, or in some cases, cases like April's, where it's the person who has traditionally been the victim of sustaining the violence, but they've now committed a crime as a result of that. And so they get called to testify, basically do what John Call was called to do in April's case, but they use the evidence in social science that we have today to apply to these cases. Yeah, and we actually today have a, a certification that these experts can go through, and it's, a, it's very specific, and it's related to this kind of um, domestic violence uh, type of thinking, right, that victims often have. And um, I avoid using battered women's syndrome there because, you know, I actually learned through this conversation, I hope you guys learned this today as well, that... Um, that's really not the terminology and the courts are slow to change obviously that so but that's not the terminology that they use today but we're also going to be hearing from in addition to um angela Beatty, who is with the ywca out of oklahoma city and runs some of their domestic violence services um out there in okc uh she's one of the experts that we spoke with and then also molly bryant who is local here to tulsa who is formerly with divis and currently with ywca tulsa um, working with immigrant and refugee populations. Um, they're going to enlighten us today, and I think um, you all are going to find it really interesting conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy these discussions. We're going to kind of let these play out now for you. Uh, it's my understanding that both of you are qualified to be experts on issues of domestic violence. Like I got trained, but it was after I got thrown into testifying for a protective order court when I just went as an advocate and the lawyer was like, I'm calling Molly Bryant. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like this work is always trial by fire and somehow you just get stuck doing something once and then you're doing it. It's interesting. I have, and I've, so I've done it and I've done it, the expert witness testimony, but it's been Oklahoma County, Payne County. I went to Stillwater, so Payne County, Cleveland County, so Norman, Canadian, which is out West, and then maybe Pot County too, Pottawatomie County. So it is, so I can say like, I've been certified in like five or six ah. counties, which is interesting. Where, are, yeah. Do you Who always testify for the defense or do you sometimes testify for the prosecution or both? Mostly for the prosecution, which is interesting. So most of my, so I was first qualified as an expert by Oklahoma County um, for a case in Oklahoma County and testified for the prosecution. 
I was cross-examined. And so I felt like that was my trial by fire. So it was interesting. I mean, I still have a, a way to go, like to polish myself and work on it. And I have to check my own biases as it relates to criminal defense attorneys sometimes because your, your affect can't change when you're being questioned by different people. So it's because it's needed. It's needed and there's nobody else doing it. So then it's like, well, I guess I will. Mm-hmm. I guess I will. It's really, I guess I will. They don't train, like they don't offer this kind of training. I don't think there was a standard before. Oh. That's what I think. Before that law, and I'll try to look it up. I don't think there was a a standard benchmark for what people, what experience you had to have or who could be an expert. So then it was more, you just, you know, argued in front of the judge about someone's knowledge, experience, and training. You know, what are some of the biggest myths or misunderstandings that the public has about domestic violence and coercive control type relationships? I started adding myths into my presentations after a while, because basically that's just like, it's just all myth. (laughs) Like basically the entire, our society's understanding of domestic violence is is just fundamentally wrong. Um, So I felt like I had to start with that and just to get us to like, yeah, an understanding of, okay, whatever you've probably imagined domestic violence to look like or be like and feel like is not reality for most people (laughs) so I mean like one of the main things that I like got super frustrated with and I know Angela and I have both talked about this is just this like perception of what a survivor looks like and how a survivor should act the domestic violence movement did it to themselves like screwed themselves over by presenting survivors as like visibly beaten up usually like pretty skinny white women And that was a way to like get attention for the movement, like get attention to what was happening. But it also meant that like the idea of a survivor became that monolith, like that person. And it's just not what we see. Like that's not, that doesn't represent the spectrum of survivors. I think for me, one of the biggest myths is that people misjudge how far and widespread the actual control is in the relationship. A victim behavior is often counterintuitive, so it, it doesn't make sense for victims to do things like immediately bail their abuser out of jail once he gets arrested for assaulting them. But I've had clients tell me things like, if he's going to get out because his mom is going to go down there, or his brother or his sister or someone, and if I'm not the person that goes, what consequences, repercussions, you know, physical assault will I face? for not being the person there supporting him. Or even things about how coercive control transcends space. So you can be in another place, but they're constantly, you know, calling, texting, concerned about your whereabouts, you know, trackers on your car, all of those things. So even though you may not physically be in their presence, there's still this, you know, strong arm of coercive control around you that inhibits your ability to seek support outside of that. And so I think people just misjudge what that really looks like. Um, what does it look like when your whole worldview is changed and becomes focused on someone else because that's what they demand? I think is beyond comprehension for a lot of people just because they simply haven't been there. That's one of the things that I think 
one of the things that bugged me about the expert witness testimony was the use of the language reasonable and like unreasonable or even stupid behavior. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like I think through all the people that I've worked with. And when you start working with survivors, yes, that may be like your thought of like, this seems really irrational, really unreasonable behavior. Why would someone behave that way? And like, you have to go back to thinking and remembering that like a survivor is a survivor because they've been surviving <laughs> because they figured it out. Right. So like yes. what is unreasonable behavior to us is the most rational, reasonable thinking to the survivor because they have made it this far. And so it drives me crazy when I hear like, well, why did they do this? Well, why did they do this? Assuming there's no logical answer, but usually if you peel back and you ask like exactly, why would you have bailed out your, well, that means you're not real because you bailed out your, uh, like your abuser. And it's like, no, the last time I didn't bail out my abuser, this is what happened. So this time I'm going to prevent that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Clients do what they think will keep them the most safe in the moment because they are the expert on their lives. And so if the thing that will keep me the most safe in the moment is acquiescing to whatever he wants, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Very powerful. It reminds me of several moments in this story um, that the jurors, well, we've spoken to one juror specifically, but the thing that the jury found unforgivable about April's case is that she went to Terry's house the night of the shooting. And that is just something that they cannot get past because it's like, if she was in this mortal danger that she says she was in, why would she seek him out? Why would she go to his house? Why would she ring the doorbell at 2 a.m. with somebody who's very violent and unpredictable? But everything you just said just validates her story, which is that she she was trapped into a corner to the point where she knew if she sat lying in wait, which she had done before, she would have just been hurt or killed. If she went to her house, she would have been hurt or killed. If she tried to run away, she would have been probably chased and hurt or killed. I mean, the number of times that she had tried to run from his house and been caught, pulled back in by the hair several other things like that explains so much about why she didn't leave that night right like there was the prosecution makes a big deal about well she walked by the front door two or three separate times and could have walked out and it's like but she knows what happens when she walks out well and like I thought about you know like her going to his house there's like so many reasons why that could be the case But one is we'll often hear like, oh, well, she started it. Like she slapped me first. She hit me first. And sometimes like, yeah, absolutely. Because like the tension has been building. And in order to break that tension before it gets to like strangulation or whatever has happened before is to like break that tension by being the aggressor, right? Like being the person who starts it. And so for her going back to the house and my thought was like, it's probably because it had been building for a while and she was ready to get over with, like get just the tension over with, not necessarily like everything else. 
But yet living with that unknown, because that's the worst part, is the fear of the unknown. It's the constant, you know, being on eggshells. I don't know if, you know, any of your listeners are familiar with just that that pit in your stomach feeling when you're stressed out over something. So for that to be your constant existence, I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I can't imagine. And so I, I bet she did. Um, want to just say, let me go. Let me see how it's going to work out. Because otherwise he's going to be vigilantly looking for me. And when he finds me, what will those repercussions be? How injured will I be? And she's like, much like Molly said, she's the expert on her own life. She's going to know what his, you know, what his track record is, what he typically does. And she's got like an ounce of control of when it happens. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like, that just that matters because again, like if you're always thinking that it's going to happen and you don't know when, at least you can control that. Well, it's going to happen now and tomorrow I'll get over it or whatever. Yeah. There are several times where we hear April say things like, I'm tired of not just shooting him or I don't understand why I can't shoot him. I can't bring myself to shoot him because she did at one point have a firearm that was given to her by another individual for protection. And there was a lot of this. I can't bring myself to do it. I can't bring myself to defend myself leading up to a really chaotic time where she ultimately winds up shooting and killing him. These indicia of premeditation for the prosecution are actually, in my opinion, exculpatory because it's like I had so many times when I could have killed him, but I wasn't, I just am not a violent person and I wasn't able to make myself do it. Yeah. You know, I think it's not uncommon for the clients we serve, for survivors to to get a firearm for protection, even though that kind of makes them go, because you do have to be ready to pull the trigger and end it all. Anyone that is a, a, a gun advocate or someone that supports the right to bear arms will let you know that having, a, you know, a gun is not for the weak at heart. <laughs> that is not, you know, you need to be prepared to use it and use it fatally. And that is a hard decision to make because if survivors just want the abuse to stop. They don't necessarily want their abuser dead. They just want the abuse to stop. They want to move forward with their lives. And in most cases, I'm sure Molly, you could see you see this too, is that they just want the abuser to get help. Yeah. You know, I feel like as advocates, we want things to be more punitive <laughs> often for perpetrators than, than survivors. Survivors just want him to be happy and healthy and on his own. And I want to live my life. So it's not surprising to hear that she felt like she wouldn't be able to in the moment if it came down to that. Because I think that for most survivors, that statement is true. They just want the abuse to stop. They still love their abusers. They still want them to be better. They still hope that they will change or be the person they were in the beginning of the relationship, even if they do have a firearm for protection. Honestly, it's that like, that's another one of those myths it's really hard for people to understand. It's like, you can be abused. So she could be abused by him and still be desperately in love with him. Like it's not, and that's not an irrational thing. It's because it's not always abusive. It's because maybe it's once a month, maybe it's once a quarter, maybe it is once a week, but like, she doesn't want to kill him. Not necessarily because she's like, I don't want to go to prison, but because she loves him and because she like sees him as a human. And Yes, like our clients so often are like, well, I don't want to press charges because that's going to hurt him and his mom. And I'm friends with his mom and I've known her forever and that's going to break her heart. I mean, like there's so many things to this decision, but also like just one more thing about firearms, like 
if a woman owns a firearm, what is that statistic? If a woman owns a firearm, she is like much more, it is much more likely that she will be the one killed by that same firearm than her killing someone else with it. So we always like really caution survivors. If you have a gun, which is your right, please get trained on it. So there were two main things that the juror that we talked to could not get past. One, that she went there that night and the other, that she shot eight times. She emptied the clip and like our explanation for that, and I don't want to spend this whole time me talking, but our explanation for that is she was trained as a, as a girl in Kellyville when your life is threatened, you empty the clip. I mean, it's not, it's not even that unusual to me that she shot eight times, but I guess for them, they felt like, well, if you were just shooting to neutralize the threat, then you would just shoot them three times or but it's like you're making a determination about a millisecond. And you're also like, that's what oh, I was going to Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, and you're in the middle of something that you're really probably not there for. <laughs> like you're pulling the trigger, but you're not, you are in the middle of the most traumatic point of your life. And so, I mean, I had a client who was, I told Leslie about this, who was, uh, who killed her stalker. And at the trial, the way that the the DA knew that jurors were going to really care about how many times she shot for that exact reason, that people are like, just shoot once and, you know, neutralize the threat, whatever. And the way he did it, which I thought was disgustingly brilliant, was to say like, she didn't shoot him once, she shot him one two, three, four, five. And so then it makes it seem like it's this, like each shot is a thoughtful decision when it's all just one lump of trauma, one crisis happening. It's not individual, like seven, does she shoot him seven or eight times? Like eight times. And individual choices, right? That's exactly how Tim Harris opens his opening statement. The, bang. the DA who bang bang bang, bang, bang. No, they're taught to do that. This was Tulsa County. I was gonna say, did they te- do they teach that in law school? Did that come from like OCU law, law school, OU law, TU law? It's the it's Tulsa DA. I mean, I've seen it happen multiple times, but that clapping is exactly how they do it, and it gets jurors. Yeah. What class do they teach it in? So we can go to that class and shut it down. Because <laughs> to me, that sounds like they all had the same professor in law school. Or they all studied under Harris. Yeah, yeah something. Right. I don't. This is yeah. like a, this is, I think, a good segue into just helping the public understand what are the hurdles to actually getting help in these in these types of relationships, right? Whether it's through the criminal justice system, through the police, or just through like services like that you guys work for. Like, what are the hurdles that that your clientele face, and 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 what does that look like for them? I think the first one is just the lack of available help. You know, I am very proud of the work we do here. Um, I'm very proud of, like I have anything to do with it, very proud of the work they do out of Tulsa at Divis. I think they're an amazing program. We are the two largest programs in the state and we are always full and always overburdened and don't have enough staff to do what we need to do. And so even in the, the two largest communities where people have the most access, where there are things like public transportation, because that doesn't exist in most of the rest of the state, there's a severe lack of available resources. And so it, you know, if you live on the outskirts of town, there's just not enough to go around. Um, along with that, I think 
we can have a fabulous empathic response, but that doesn't always mean that you get an empathic response from law enforcement or other members of the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, empathy isn't a requirement to be a, a law enforcement officer. And they get frustrated with the mirage of, of uh, domestic calls that they get a day. They are consistently increasing. So they, I, I imagine that people haven't always gotten positive responses. And so that could be her truth, that maybe when she sought support before, it wasn't real received. So those are big hurdles, just having access to transportation and communication. You know, it has been invaluable, us having additional like texting platforms and things like that that we started in COVID, because so many clients don't have access to even have a phone number to call us on. We've rescued someone in the middle of COVID, sent police to their house to rescue them. She was sending us emails and deleting them because her abuser was holding her hostage in the house during COVID. So that kind of stuff exists and has existed even before COVID. So a lot of times people don't have access. Well, I don't want to get on a soapbox about this, but but I kind of do because- I want to hear you. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a whole reason that there is like a movement to address domestic violence outside of the criminal legal system. Like there is a reason for that. And it is because the legal system really hasn't done a whole lot to reduce violence, not a whole lot to hold perpetrators accountable, but also just like in general, violence has not really decreased Mm -hmm. and it tends to perpetuate the same cycle of power and like power and control over survivors. Like that system exerts that same kind of power and control. And like, at best, it's really ineffective. (laughs) I mean that's kind of like I I know I'm jaded but like it is it's ineffective and at worst it's it's harmful and like dangerous Mm -hmm. for survivors and I'd like to hear more about that from each of you because in this case right April um had three different emergency protective orders and followed up on none of them right which I'm sure is not unusual or unheard of for you guys and so I don't know if you could just touch on that theme of like the use of protective orders the ineffectiveness or effectiveness if if you think that they are and why survivors might not follow up on once they've gotten an emergency order I feel like that's a tough one you know we see in 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 oftentimes other service providers other people and you know lay people in the community encourage survivors to get protective orders that's the thing you need to do to to prove that you want to in the relationship or to assertively say I don't want you to talk to me anymore um and while yes they can be a helpful tool in some situations protective orders are only as as valid or as good as the enforcement of them and so if you live in a community where law enforcement is hesitant to respond to or act on violations of that order if you have a perpetrator that doesn't care about stacking up violations of that order, then the order itself won't necessarily protect you. And if she didn't go beyond an an, an emergency order, I wonder if he was ever even served. And so a lot of times, a lot of our clients end up, you know, essentially giving up by the end of that process because they could never get the abuser officially served. So then they, they have this emergency order that's in place and they go to court and they go to court and they go to court. They have to take off of work, find a babysitter for the kids, you know, incur all of this cost to park um, and get there only for it to continue to get continued because abuser is hiding out as his cousin Pookie's house or hiding out with his friend that lives in, you know, East or West Timbuktu. 
And so it's not uncommon for, for clients to just, you know, get frustrated with that process because it never goes anywhere. And like, that's one of the first questions you ask when doing a safety plan around like, it, or, or like, is a protective order a good idea? I mean, one of the first questions you ask is, does your abuser respect the police? Are they afraid of the police? Do they respect authority? And if they're like, no, they don't care, then like probably a protective order isn't going to do anything. It's not. I mean, and it, it, it is, and it sometimes makes it worse. So there are many, of many times where we say it is always your choice. If you want to file a protective order, I mean, for sure the DAs are going to want to see that, right? If something ever happens. But if you want to file a protective order, these are the things that could happen. It could just exacerbate the entire situation. And it often does. So if you have someone who doesn't respect the police and isn't afraid of them, then it's a piece of paper that just basically said like, hey, I'm going to get you in trouble. It's a piece of paper that says in two weeks, we're going to go to court and you're going to get in trouble and it's going to say you can't talk to me anymore. It's like... Yep. <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> and then and even if you violate it, the chances of anyone coming out in time to protect you from it is very unlikely. Yeah. Especially if you don't speak the language, especially if you live in a rural place, especially if the abuser is a police officer. You know, like there's yeah. all these things that are happening as well, especially if you're connected <laughs> to the community. I was say, let's not forget that abusers are often connected. They use the money, power, and connections to their disposal. I never will forget one of the first clients I served at YWCA as a baby advocate. Her abuser, his mom worked at like high up in the state office, like the Department of Corrections office. And so she knew like all the judges in Oklahoma County and would like go to barbecues at their houses. And so he got away with everything, everything, because they spent 4th of July and that's in, in a large county. Imagine in a smaller yeah. community when your family owns the general store and the tag place and all of the other things. Your you know, your cousin is the DA. You're not going to be held accountable in that community. Your no. grandpa is the sheriff. I mean, there are counties, Creek County, for instance. Good luck ever. You know, there's like the law that will remove your firearm if you have a protective order or violation of protective order they the judge literally says i will not be checking this box because we don't have anywhere they literally the judge says i'm not going to take the guns it's our second amendment we don't have anywhere to store them anyway forever has just blatantly said we don't care we're never going to do it I'm the domestic violence fatality review board. Um, so I have the the ability to sit on that board, the privilege. And um, the representatives from a lot of different disciplines and the representative from the sheriff's association, often he, it's so much that it's become like a coin term on fatality review board. He says, uh, 77 counties, 77 ways to do a protective order. And it's true. It is Every true. county is different. The way that the clerks accept it, the information you have to have on it, the way that a judge reviews it. Some counties, you see a judge immediately. Some counties, one judge reviews them. Some counties, whichever judge has the time, reviews them to determine who gets an emergency. How they set the court, the 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 hearings is different for every county. And so, you know, there's not I'll much of a continuity. Law. I mean, when I first <laughs> went to my first as a baby advocate, I was like sitting in the courtroom with someone and the judge gives his like, this is like, he gives the same speech every morning. Of course, I didn't know this because this was my first day. So I'm like interested. And he's like, <laughs> oh, 
what would you, so it, would you say you could file a protective, he's talking to everyone here. Can you file a protective order if your neighbor walks over to your house and threatens to kill you? And I'm like, mm-hmm. And he's like, no. And then everyone's like, and he gets like three other scenarios where I'm like, yes, you could. <laughs> and he's like, no, you can't. And a lot of people don't qualify. And so people just give up. As a survivor, you're damned if you do and you, you're damned if you don't. Because if, if April had been the one killed, the prosecutors would have used those protective orders as evidence to show that Terry had a propensity for violence and that, that he was the one that, you know, was like, look at all the time she tried to get help. And, but, in, but since she's the one that pulled the trigger, it's used as a way to show that she never availed herself of a permanent protective order. She abandoned the legal system. It was her choice to walk away. And so there's literally no winning, like either way you go with this. Like you, like you guys said, if, if he doesn't respect authority and he has special connections, he was gonna come after her no matter what. So having the paper only really put her in more danger. And like sometimes survivors, it's like filing a protective order. Sometimes they just want, or calling the police. Like they just want and need immediate intervention. They're not looking for like the whole comprehensive intervention of the legal system. They just want that immediate safety. And, but the damned if you do, damned if you don't is, but if you call and you don't follow through with your protective order, you don't cooperate and press charges, then you are considered, well, okay, then you're not really considered a real victim. So mm-hmm. I was cornered at a Mexican restaurant in Tulsa by our Tulsa County District Attorney. And our Tulsa County District Attorney waved his finger at me and said, you need to get your victims to testify in court cases because that's the reason that no one's getting punished. Your victims, if they're real victims, they would testify. And those are the people who are advocating, who are supposed to be advocating for survivors. But it's this idea that, well, they can, they're they're just using us for protective orders. They're just using the taxpayer's money for police calls. But if they don't cooperate with this whole slew of traumatic experiences, then they're not really, they don't really need our help. They're just wasting our time. Which is preposterous because you think about how the criminal justice system is set up to protect the accused, not not the actual victim. So I can't think of a victim that is excited to go through a three-year trial process. Exactly. And so even if you are like, I, you know, I'm going to take part in this system. I'm going to do this. I am, you know, assertively going to speak my truth on the stand. That process takes forever. And it's designed to, yeah, that's disheartening to hear. That's why we have things like evidence-based prosecution. It's why we, and I know Kathy Bale is doing a million forensic exams in the Tulsa, the Tulsa area. So, I mean, it's, it's those like, that's where like someone's, I mean, I would have, I believe that he would have said this in public too, but it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is how you're running this entire office. This entire massive county is believing this like myth from like the thirties. Like, I don't even know where this idea comes from. Like it is so far back and yeah and it's like oh actually like no I'm not going to make them testify for you so that you can have better numbers it's not her job or their job to to 
get someone convicted. <laughs> like they're Do the they victim. use like burglary victims to prove <laughs> the burglary case? That's exactly the question, right? You're not like now you, you have, have a murder, murder victim for a homicide case. They're not testifying. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Because we know for so many reasons, it is often unsafe for victims to testify. And so, you know, using experts, using forensic exams, you know, Tulsa County and Oklahoma County both do a lot of forensic examinations where, you know, qualified forensic nurses that have been specially trained provide, you know, holistic medical care. They get, uh, you know, forensic examination where they're able to, to document injury. I mean, we have cameras that see bruises under the skin. It's pretty neat. Um, and so they're able to get lots of, of, of evidence that can be used in prosecution and they can testify. They're excluded from like the hearsay rule. So they can testify about what victims have shared during the course of that exam. And so it's really helpful if you use the evidence, you can use domestic violence experts that help explain why a victim may behave in a certain way. And then actually depending on the evidence itself to prove the case, instead of your sole kind of ace in the hole being the survivor. And we've seen a lot of success with it. Our nurses, when our nurses are at the table and our forensic nurses are testifying, they win cases. <laughs> they win cases. And it's interesting, cases will plead out when they find out the nurses on the, the nurses oh, yeah. on the case. And so it's really helpful and it it almost always works if we use it. Because otherwise they might just drop it. Like if the victim or survivor chooses not to testify, they'll say, mm-hmm. well, we've got nothing else. Yeah. It's like, well, and that's what happened. So there was a rape in April's case in, in December leading up to like this horrible period where he started serially stalking her. And basically, you know, he was cuffed and then they uncuffed him and said, just file a report. And then because she was bullied into not cooperating with the authorities on the rape, they just, it was just over. There was just no rape investigation, no charges, no. I mean, that's part of, in my jaded opinion, it's, it's about, it's less about like if the crime actually occurred and more about if they win the case. And so if they can win the case and report that they're winning this percentage of cases, then it looks good. But if they dismiss them, that doesn't calculate into their percentage of of wins. So, I mean, I really think that plays into it. And you can see the difference, at least you could a couple of years ago in Tulsa County and Oklahoma County, Tulsa just had an enormous amount of dismissals and it made the DA's numbers look good. It's really bad. (laughs) It is. I mean, in general, I feel like sexual assault rape cases are the ones that almost never get prosecuted. Like they have the least numbers in terms of prosecution rates. They just, like, I think we've run numbers. I think less than 3% of the cases of the rapes that we do exams on ever go to trial. It's something like that. I mean, it's, it's bad. And that's not even like actually getting someone convicted, right? That's just like going. That's just like yeah. some type of yeah. charge. Something being charged. Yeah. I probably say like 1% actually end up in an actual conviction. I mean, that's like, when our nurses are on there. They, they get them. Those, that's the 1%. But like things, I think about like 1999 to now, how much more, well, how many more sane nurses we have, so sexual assault nurse yeah. examiners, how better trained they are better technology, DNA evidence. So like, it's, it's not surprising even now that that type of like rape case wouldn't go anywhere, but it makes much more sense that it was 1999. That's true. DNA You've come a long way. Yeah. In the last 20 some odd years. Yeah. Yeah. 
but at that point wasn't Oklahoma like just stashing away the rape kits for like I'm pretty sure yeah, yeah I mean marital to rape wasn't even a thing until like the 90s so we didn't even have a marital rape law on the books was it 94 I think 90 something like that mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I mean there's still implied consent so you asleep. and it's your still- husband can rape you it's okay mm-hmm. yikes okay let's jump into some of the stuff about um battered person syndrome and just like for people who don't know what that is or think it's like a get out of jail free card what can you guys kind of shed light on what is it and then does everyone who's in a dv relationship get or catch um battered person syndrome or is it just something that you use sport or i'll let angela speak more to it i if you want because <laughs> i i don't we didn't use we don't use this terminology at divots it is definitely a contentious thing so i i kind of follow sue ostoff she's like battered women's clearance house maybe they're called something else now but she was one of the earlier she wasn't the one who like coined the term but she was an early writer on battered women's syndrome and then has come back to critique it and i mean the way like the answer is no not everyone you know, would be diagnosed with battered person syndrome. Also, it's not a, it's not a diagnosis. Yeah, it's not a diagnosis. It is, it's interesting. Battered women syndrome gets used a lot in the legal field, but in the actual advocacy realm, we don't use it at all. The research I think came out of like the sixties or seventies. And so it is a bit outdated, which is one of the reasons why we don't use it as much anymore, but it is still used in legal realm because there's case law precedents for it. And so it it really centers around, I feel like, the ambivalence that survivors often feel after being in really tumultuous, coercively controlling relationships or after experiencing a lifetime of trauma. Because a lot of the people we serve have experienced trauma that started in their childhoods. And so that compounding trauma coupled with either failures in the criminal justice system to hold a perpetrator accountable before, failures of that same system to keep you safe, negative reactions from supporting professionals like law enforcement, case management, child welfare workers, social service workers, all of that leads survivors to feel like they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. They feel like there's nothing often, there's no real relief that can be sought for them. And so as a result of those negative, you know, the constant abuse and and trauma from from my perpetrator and the lack of support from other outside resources, survivors often feel like I can't get help. There is no help. Who's going to help? And so I think that ends up being kind of what, what people coin as battered woman syndrome, this feeling of there is no better. This is the life I was, you know, I am stuck and led to live, feeling as if there's no support and that you can't get away from the control manipulation and essentially omniscience of an abuser and like I mean that's yeah but like the only thing I remember is reading about it about like learned helplessness Mm -hmm. and that also just bugs me so much because it's what Angela just described it's not learned helplessness like people aren't just like I've relied on this abuser forever and I'm just gonna whatever just gonna live like this I can't live without them like it is also, it's not necessarily like that passivity that mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to stay in this. It is not necessarily a passive thing. It's, it can be active. You can actively decide to stay in order 
to protect your children because your abuser has said, if you leave, I will kill our children. Mm-hmm. So this like what looks like passiveness and passivity or whatever the word is, is actually, it's not helplessness. It's actually being smart, going back again to knowing exactly your situation and what it takes to survive in it. I mean, I think that's been critiqued. Like that's like, it's not really learned helplessness anymore, but that's why there are certain aspects of it that I feel like they didn't go deep enough into understanding the context in which yeah because yeah. when you consider all of those factors then it makes sense that someone would get to this place of ambivalence yes. like like who gonna help me <laughs> who's gonna help me answer what's the answer it might be like yeah honestly i don't know yeah yeah our shelter's full our shelters are full. We don't have money to drive you all over town. Lord knows gas is expensive. Where are you going to go? And don't let you live outside of Oklahoma City or Tulsa because how the hell are you going to get there? And our grant money is not going to pay for da 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 It's can't not. Can't in a hotel. Can't do this. It's not. Yeah. There, you know, we are fortunate in that we primarily serve the counties that, we, that we're officed out of. Mm-hmm. But there are 27 programs, 26, 27 programs, somewhere around there that serve all 77 counties. So there's one program that with out of three satellite offices, they serve 10 counties in Western Oklahoma. Yeah. So your closest shelter may be three hours away because mm-hmm. all three of them aren't even shelters. It's like one or two of them is, and then the other's just an office. So then, you know, if there's no help to be had, then there yeah. is this learned, learned helplessness. That reminded me. So in the, at some point, D.A. Harris says like, well, didn't, didn't law enforcement give her referrals to Divis or to a domestic violence shelter? And that was considered, and police officers do, that is something new. They do give referrals. But what it means to receive a referral is to be given a number to call a shelter mm-hmm. on your own phone because they won't use, they won't let them use their the officer's phone number to call a shelter that is probably going to say we're full. So like, I don't know, that just kind of like, yes, he referred her, but that doesn't mean that she's going to get the help that she needs. Yeah. It just means he gave her a number to call with overworked people. So it's it's really interesting your reaction to um just the concept of battered person or battered women's syndrome is really interesting to me okay because in the legal context it serves this really unique purpose as far as self-defense goes um to uh change the objective reasonableness standard such that you you're it's no longer just any old reasonable reasonable person off the street right if you can get this instruction and you can introduce this evidence you suddenly get this maybe I don't want to call it lesser. It's just a different standard where the 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 jury must assess it from the standard of a person who's been abused, right? So it's not just a a fully objective instruction. It, it has this nuance to it, and it's it's you know it's in it's in the uniform instructions here in Oklahoma as battered women's syndrome self defense, right? So it, it we're stuck with it. We're stuck with it for yeah. for, for better or worse, right? And, and the the case law is what it is. But to hear like the practitioner, the practitioner view is just, it's kind of blowing my mind right now because th- these critiques I think are really valid and they're so nuanced because the behavior, I think what you guys were touching on this past, this idea of passivity and learned helplessness become a big issue in April's case. Tim mm-hmm. Harris, is, he makes a big deal about how she's a strong-willed, independent, intelligent, capable woman. So she couldn't possibly be ba- a battered woman because she doesn't qualify for learned helplessness or passivity in, in, in her behaviors, right? And so it becomes a big issue. And it's, I'm going to stop my monologue here, but it, I just think that that's just interesting to hear from practitioners. There's also another thing that it does, like 
from a functional trial perspective, it brings, it gives us the ability to bring in all the past behavior of Terry. So it's like a very unique legal theory for us and like super innovative, right? In the world of like trial evidence and self-defense, because normally we would never be able to get all that stuff in that he did. Right. I mean, I think that's part of like law changes really slowly and our, in our industry, things are like change. I mean, I still feel like they're slow, but they are changing in the way that we understand the dynamics of domestic violence are changing and we don't have to go through the law to like, to change the way that we discuss domestic yeah. violence. So I think it's, it's like, it worked and it was really, and, and it was really innovative for everyone at the time, but it's just, it's old now. It's, it's old and it, where it serves a really important purpose. Yeah. But, so it's like, kind of like gritting your teeth, like, ugh. It feels old, but if it's if it's what we got, then it's easy. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so in that vein, like what would you say has changed from like a clinical perspective or a research perspective? I think the field has just done a lot more to understand trauma. And so even like we as advocates and people in our work understand that counterintuitive behavior that I talked about. I think the general public doesn't. So I think we've gone a long way to understand this is why people behave the way they behave. And so creating kind of a trauma-informed response, creating, learning about how those kinds of events impact people over time. But I don't think the general public has done that work, which is why I think experts are so important. So I think our field has changed a lot in that way. Our field has also changed a lot in the way that and like our best practices on how we work with survivors mm-hmm. and, and making things a lot more individualized, tailored towards each individual person's experience. Um, because I think initially victim services was, was much more of a cookie cutter approach where everybody got the same treatment, everybody was offered the same things. And so much like how Molly talked about, we're really gonna process through with someone, is this protective order even a good idea for you or not? When 30 years ago, we'd have just said, everybody gets a protective order. Yeah, Um, I I think trauma-informed is the biggest change. And there is more more research, research is more accessible. Okay, if we think about protective orders in 99, Probably most people assumed that protective orders did a lot and like just were like the like ended a relationship for someone. I feel like now, obviously, there's still a lot of misconceptions, but it's like people are able to share their stories. There's media about domestic violence. There's podcasts, but there's also like big little lies and like all kinds of like just like pop culture that is much more aligned to a real experience. I don't know. I feel like there's just something about having more information sharing that has moved us quite a bit. So I'd be curious to hear, I mean, if you feel up to on the cuff talking about this, but let's say, let's say we approached you. We had a client. She's been suffering from domestic violence. We need an expert to talk about just some of the behaviors maybe that are hard to understand for the general public. How would you guys go about forming an opinion in order to, 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 to provide expert testimony? What would you look at to put your opinion together about what someone is dealing with? Yeah. So in cases where I have access to the information, so I've done cases both ways, Um, somewhere I didn't have any access to the information and I was just coming in as expert talking in generalizations. Um, But then in cases where I had access to the information, 
as much as I can have, I've, I've looked at things like medical records um, that will corroborate physical injury. I've looked at things like text messages between parties to kind of help me under, get a, a good gauge of what happened between their relationship. Facebook messages, same kind of thing. What else have I looked at? I've looked at clinical notes to help me kind of best gauge what was going on with a survivor. And then I've interviewed them. Um, I feel like I get the most information just from hearing their story about what their relationship was like. I always often try to get like a, a lethality assessment or some kind of evidence-based tool as well um, that can be utilized to, to help me determine what was lethality risk for that survivor. Um, what did that look like? Um, there's also an evidence-based tool called the ODARA that's used to check for recidivism risk in perpetrators. And it's evidence-based out of Ontario, Canada. And so I've used that as well to help determine that, you know, a perpetrator had a significantly high recidivism risk and then was able to help explain the survivor's victimization as a result of that. So those are typically the things I use. The interview portion, I feel like, is what you get the most from, though hearing from them, what their experiences were, what was most impactful for them during the victimization, the things that they remember most. I would need to like find the most updated literature on what, what people are saying about it. Cause I think, because it's again, like, unless you're a lawyer, I don't think this syndrome is really anything that we're super trained on. Would yeah. you consider your psychiatric records from any types of institutionalization? I would consider them, but I would also understand that people that have psychiatric degrees don't get advanced training in domestic violence, sexual assault, or victimization. They don't. They do not at all. Everyone that I know that has a, a, a licensure for some sort of social service or, or mental health field they haven't. I'm completing my MSW right now, but it's not a part of my curriculum. And the majority of people in my program plan to do direct services with families. Most of them work at agencies like DHS and Sunbeam and, and Catholic Charities and the Homeless Alliance. So major players in our community that are doing this work. And there's like no information on domestic violence. That's scary to me. They were unleashing people on the world to do therapy with people because you can graduate this with this degree and go straight into supervision doing therapy with no real training on domestic violence. And everyone that I know that has a license or even a PhD, you don't get this training knowledge or expertise, even if you have a very, you know, a really nice degree. You can choose it, right? For your continuing education, that's about it. Yes, you can choose it. And so like every paper that I've had, the flexibility, like evidence-based innovations, <laughs> different domestic violence victims. Or every time, <laughs> every time I can like, sneak oh, you, it in there, I do. care about this subject. <laughs> yeah. Every time I can sneak it in, I do. But it's not due to any of the curricula. That's interesting um, because Dr. Call, uh, the expert witness in April's case, was, a, was the only, I think at the time, what's called a diplomate which is like a really high ranking type of psychologist. He's a PhD, right? Like he treats patients and serves as an expert witness as um, in like specifically psychiatric issues, like insanity. Like if someone was pleading insanity in a case, mm -hmm. he would be there to testify, okay, yes, this person does meet the clinical standard for insanity, which has almost nothing to do with what we're talking about here. So I we mean, know. There's, yeah, there's oh, a difference ahead. between mental health and trauma. 
and like the people who focus on mental health and like diagnosing, right, are the psychologists, the the people who are clinical, but that doesn't mean that they have an understanding of trauma or of what a domestic violence relationship looks like, because that's not the same. I mean, it's not the same. It's a similar world, but it's not the same. And you can't say because a person is bipolar that their aggression is because of their diagnoses. Like there's all these other things at play. Yeah, it's interesting. So in the field of domestic violence, one of the things that we've learned and is now a practice is that we don't refer victims to get psychiatric evaluations as a result of their victimization because those psyche, psych, you know, the psych evaluations weren't set up or designed for people experiencing trauma. So if you do, what is it, the MMPI 2 or something, that big 3,000 question assessment, a million questions. Um, So you do that assessment. That is the standard that is used for psychological evaluations. It asks questions about, are people following you? Do you think that people are listening to you or that people may be tracking you? So then you got, and and for a victim of domestic violence, hell yes. I think somebody's tracking me. I think somebody's listening to me. I think somebody's following me because my abuser is. But then it's going to rate you as like schizophrenic. (laughs) (laughs) Because those things are actually your reality. But the MMPI doesn't account for that. (laughs) I'm freaking out right now because that is exactly what happened in this case. And what's crazy is that, like, Angela, I know that you didn't have a ton of time. I didn't even read the stuff. (laughs) I know. I know. And so to hear this is just so validating. It's It's the same for psychologists today. There are lots of qualified psychologists who are great in their field, who have done forensic examinations for lots of people, but they do not understand how trauma impacts someone. And so they get used as experts when this is not their niche. They don't have the understanding of trauma and they use psychological evaluations to victims' detriment. And so, so much so that even now, um, so I don't know if you guys are aware Child Welfare has an amazing domestic violence task force. And out of that collaborative, they created what we call the Purple Bible. It is a domestic violence best practices manual for child welfare for all DHS professionals on how to handle domestic violence cases. It's amazing. I'll have to get y'all copies. It's good. And we've had it reviewed by national experts. They said it's bar none. It's one of the best they've seen in the country. And in that manual for child welfare workers across the state, all, you know, I don't know, five, 7,000 of them, they are not supposed to request or refer domestic violence victims to get psychological evaluations anymore because of how detrimental they are for survivors because they do not take into account their victimization. So it is in that book. And as recently as the last two weeks, our advocates were pulling up the book and literally like DHS worker, hey, do you have, can I have you look at, you have your purple book, turn to page 72 or whatever page it is with me. And I want you to read this. So maybe let's not put this in the service plan that we include for that survivor. And so I think that's a new thing that we've learned in the last 15 years is let's not have survivors so she was referred to Parkside. She was taken to Parkside involuntarily committed twice because of her actions relating to PTSD and trying to survive. They used those records in the expert witness testimony. So yeah, she's she's typed as bipolar two with schizoaffective tendencies. They put her on lithium. That just sounds like trauma. Yeah. 
it just sounds like trauma because manic and depressive or like that that anxiety that walking on eggshells that fear yes they're going to be up and down they're going to be good days and bad days and so that that breaks my heart it breaks my heart it's it's tough stuff and I this is my mind is blown right now so thank you guys for talking to us I have a question just like a factor in all of this that we haven't talked about yet and that is um abusing intravenous drugs like methamphetamine and how that would affect your assessment of a survivor and like the services they may need and just like if you were to testify, you know, about, again, going back to this idea of the syndrome or going back to any of the, like, uh, more modern explanations that that we have in in your field to explain these behaviors, how would you deal with that if you're dealing with a client who's been abusing uh, intravenous drugs, specifically methamphetamines? I mean, in general, I mean, in general, like, I don't care. (laughs) Like, it's kind of like the, like, my answer as an advocate or as a social worker is like, I don't really care if that's, I mean, if, if that's the survivor's choice, it sounds like in this case, maybe he like was the one pressuring her to do that. And that's totally a tactic of power and control because obviously anything, yeah, doing that is affects a survivor's life in so many different ways, right? She might not be able to keep a job. She might not be able to maintain relationships with family. Like all these different things happen whenever you're abusing substances like methamphetamine. But also often it's if that if it's not forced on them, it's often a coping skill. <laughs> I mean it's a not a healthy one, but it is a way to cope with the trauma that you're experiencing. And so I never consider it like means someone is more or less valid in their in their survivorship yeah we don't use it to determine like credibility or anything like that we know and understand that people often use substances to cope so much so that we ask about that in our intake but it is not something that is used to to deny someone access to the life-saving services that they need um we want to know so that we can help get you some help if that's what you want you know obviously we we you know, can't have clients using substances on property because we have kids and we're liable. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we understand that that's a coping skill and we want to work through that with you. We want to help you process healthier ones. We want to get you some help from our friends that do substance use treatment, if that's what you're interested in. But we know that so many of our clients, they're forced to use by their abusers or their abusers introduced to them. Their abusers use the substances as a tool to continue to manipulate and exert their control. And so absolutely, um, we work with clients who use substances. And to me, that's honestly a strong indicator that they've experienced trauma and that something has happened because they're trying to forget it. And also often abusers are the ones who are supplying, who are Mm -hmm. creating the addiction, right? creating the problem and then they're the ones also supplying it so that means that the survivor is really in order to maintain this this thing that they become addicted to need to maintain their relationship with their abuser so they can keep getting these drugs yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so we only have like 12 minutes left and I know Molly you had some time to read Dr. Paul's testimony and I would just like to have you share your thoughts there was so much to that I I wanted to like read it really thoroughly but like honestly I think it, it says that you can tell where someone's going based on the way that they communicate about the survivor and just like the language that he used like I mentioned using like calling her unreasonable saying she made stupid choices those things really are like an indicator that uh that you haven't had domestic violence training that you don't really understand trauma and that like 
you don't really care. And I know you have to be like impartial, but that's not being impartial in my opinion. I thought it was one of the things I found interesting was whenever it was clear that he was like trying to be like that Tim Harris was like, I like trying to get him essentially to say like all this new information I learned that that she had been the aggressor, like doesn't that make you reconsider battered women's syndrome? And to watch him like try to hold on, he like tried to hold on after several questions and then eventually was like, and he was like, no, it doesn't, absolutely not, no, no, no. And then at the very end, it was like, well, yeah, that would be like, it doesn't change my mind, but I see where you're going. I was really bummed about that. So I was like, no, like stick to your opinion. I mean, it was like, I felt like he was easily um, persuaded against his original opinion. Theme that emerges in the state's case of mutual combat, right? And um, recent events with the Johnny Depp trial, we've seen that theme play out even today, right? Uh, and I don't know, you know, what are you guys, what's your response to this idea of mutual combat in a domestic violence relationship? Does it exist? Can it exist? Do you think, what are some of the myths or, or realities around mutual combat? It can exist, but it is extremely rare. Because for mutual combat, you have to have two coercively controlling partners that have enough power over each other that they get to exert that over each other. What you see more often is what we call situational couple violence, which isn't rooted in power and control. It's rooted in, it's like, I like to think of like to, I think of situational couple violence as adults behaving badly, like people that never learned how to handle their own frustration and anger and feeling feelings of rejection. And so it is in it in situational couple violence is equally perpetrated by men and women, which is not the case for intimate partner violence, that kind of coercively controlling violence we typically see. And so yeah, it's not common for there to be two coercively controlling partners. You know, that, so mutual combat, not so much. Um, situational couple violence is like tit for tat. You, you know, we broke up and you have your new girlfriend around, you know, our kids, so I'm going to come slash your tires. Or because you are liking this girl's pictures too much, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, or you cheated on me and I found it, I'm going to, you know, pour bleach all over your clothes. And so we see these bad acts and it is exacerbated by substance use, mental health, those kinds of things, but it's not rooted in I want to control you it's that i i need attention or i feel upset and betrayed by you so i'm going to act out but we don't actually see mutual combat where both parent parties are controlling each other because they're then how do you have that power dynamic you can't you know i think that johnny depp and amber heard did a lot to put our field back <laughs> i think that the two of them pretty pissed off have managed to put like I think they both have challenges and they both need to seek support that they can't get from each other. That's what I think about the two of them. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think that it often is like people are quick to label it as mutual combat when a survivor fights back, mm -hmm. whenever that's not the case, that's like in whatever way it looks, that is self-defense, that is surviving. And just because, yeah, just because she absolutely like smacked him in the face does not mean that she is the abuser in the situation. Yeah. It, it doesn't look the specific black and white way. Like it is so nuanced and so complicated. It has so many layers, but we hear mutual combat all the time. All the time. And one, way, one of the things I think we've 
processed recently and how how do we tell primary aggressor is what was the motive behind the aggressive act was it used you know was physical violence used as an equalizer in that moment was it used to exert power and, and maintain control or omniscience or was it used to get away you know what was I starting something so that I could then get away or was it used to protect myself? And so looking at why was that violence used or why did we initiate that physical contact? And that leads you, you know, that'll help you figure out a lot. What was the motive behind it? Yeah. Can you have situations where you have situational couple violence or adults acting badly in a coercive control slash intimate partner violence relationship? No, because the thing about the situational couple violence is that each party feels safe and comfortable enough to show that level of aggression. So I have to know that the repercussions from you, for me doing this, are, aren't going to be so great that I, I won't be able to make it through doing this act. You know, in, in, in intimate partner violence or in real kind of those intimate terrorism situations, the person, like you don't have the freedom to show that level of anger. Because there'll be consequences and repercussions for that, that that extend far beyond what you're ready to put together and do. <laughs> and so I think, you know, you have to feel a level of freedom and security in your ability to behave that badly in the moment. And for most, you know, intimate partner violence, domestic violence relationships, that's not the case. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, we reserve the right to call either of you back for any types of questions <laughs> that we want to for the next eight weeks while we continue the, the work on this project. It'd be my pleasure. You guys yeah. were the highlight of my day. We had so much fun talking to you, and you seriously blew both of our minds in multiple different ways. So, like always, every time we talk. Well, I just adore you guys. Keep fighting Aww. a good fight. Thank you. <laughs> You guys too. I really, really just—I don't know if I came through. My internet went out, but my mind got blown <laughs> more than one more than one moment today. And I really appreciate everything I learned from you. And I hope that our listeners are going to learn something too. It's important. Yeah. So this has been episode eleven of Panic Button. And you've heard from some people who are certified as experts in this field. I think it's just really illuminating to hear from so many other people who deal with this issue on a daily basis and how a lot of the recurring themes that we heard in April's case continue to happen. This isn't an issue that is old or something that we don't ha- that doesn't happen anymore, that only happened in the 80s and the 90s and we're all better now. This is an issue that continues to happen, that people continue to be prosecuted after they are, are victims of intimate partner violence and it, the issue is alive and well. So we'll see you next week for our final episode of season one of Panic Button, where you'll hear the verdict of the case and the aftermath of the conviction. So thanks for listening. See you next time, guys. Panic Button is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty and Leslie Briggs. Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. 
If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at OK underscore Appleseed across all social platforms. You can subscribe right now in the Apple Podcasts app by clicking on our podcast logo and then hit the subscribe button. If you want to continue the conversation with other listeners, please join our Panic Button Podcast community on book clubs. Join for free at bit.ly slash 3NRHOAC. Thanks so much for listening.